welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome, 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 everybody. If you could find your seats, that'd be great. My name's Micah, if we haven't met. Um, I'm the lead pastor here at Awaken and glad to be here. Um, if you are new, welcome to you. A um, couple things before we get going. My wife looked at me last week uh, after last Sunday and she thought, you know, it's interesting, Micah. After a sermon, like uh, such an important sermon, um, your choice was a V-neck t-shirt. That's interesting. So, my clothes now represent my level of commitment to this sermon. Oh, boy. Um, If you're new, welcome to you. You may be wondering what on earth you've walked into. Uh, This is a church. We got signs falling over. Um, But so uh, last week, we're in a series called Lost in Translation. This is the last week of that. We're taking difficult passages and trying to make sense of them in some way, shape, or form. And so last week, we began a mini-series on human sexuality. And so uh, I would encourage you, if, if you're just coming into this conversation this week, to go back, uh, not to promote listening to my sermons, but just to get the whole, uh, everything that was said on this topic. Um, and we talked about binaries and really uh, a way beyond the binaries that are so normal in our culture, in our context. We talked about Galatians 5 and freedom in Christ. What does it mean to be free in Christ? Because you're in Christ, what are you free from and for? And this idea that our freedom is not a gift that we experience for ourselves, but rather actually a gift that we give to one another. And so on matters that are non-essential, meaning they're not necessary to preserve the Christian faith, which I argued this topic is non-essential, not that it is important, but it's non-essential, and so can we give each other, can we extend to one another freedom in Christ? Because we're in Christ, can we extend freedom to one another to maybe come to different conclusions on this? And so um, that really informed what we're going to do this week, which is I'm going to attempt to look at Romans 1, which is probably the most um, difficult passage to navigate on this topic. And I'm going to preach two sermons, basically, two shortened versions. Um, And I really want to try to do uh, essentially justice to Romans 1 from side A, which would be an affirming position, and side B from a non-affirming position. Um, The reason I'm doing this is not to try to prove one side or the other to you, not to try to convince you of one way of thinking, nor is it, uh, is the point of this for you to try to figure out what, where I land on this. I talked about that last week, uh, that I'm not going to do that because this forum, I don't think does this, does that justice. Um, the reason why I wanted to do this or participate in this is to, um, hopefully encourage you to attempt to understand something from someone else's perspective, that you might at least get a glance at how would somebody who doesn't agree with me on this read Romans 1, and what might be some of the reasons why they come to that conclusion? And the hope is that you grow in your capacity to see something from somebody else's perspective, which I think is directly connected to spiritual maturity, just maturity as a human, but also spiritual maturity. Uh, I, I got all the way through seminary and never read an argument that didn't agree with my position, Right? And so I want to afford you the opportunity to hear an argument from the opposite side, from maybe the perspective you don't hold, as a way to sharpen and um, maybe further your 
growth and journey in this. So to do so, we're going to do a good old-fashioned coin toss, friends. I've got a coin up here. So that you don't think that I'm um, you know, leaning one way or the other. This is totally random. I need a volunteer to help me with a coin toss, please. Yes, Tracy, thank you very much. Tracy Parkinson, everybody. <clears throat> there we are. Tracy, heads is side A. Yes. Tails is side B. Yes. You flip it, you catch it. Tell us what we're doing first. I should have pressed it. That's okay, you're going to do great. Tails. Side B, everybody. Stand if you would. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires in their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations, natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with, what, with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Pray with me. God, as we gather this morning and we read your word, I am grateful for it. I'm grateful for the revelation of you in Jesus, which uh, is attested to and these scriptures bear witness to. Help us to see the living word of God and what it might be saying to us today, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 1, from a non-affirming position, someone who does not affirm same-sex relationships. And by that, they mean that in the end, because of scripture and their conscience and interpretation, that God's best for someone who says they're gay, lesbian, trans, bi, queer, would not be to act on that impulse, that attraction, non-affirming position. Romans 1. Number one, why does Paul mirror Genesis chapter 1 in Romans 1? If you look at Romans chapter 1, and you put it right next to Genesis chapter 1, where, Paul talks, or where God, uh, Torah talks about uh, how God made male and female in his likeness, made them. Paul's argument in Romans 1 is a mirror image of what's happening in Torah in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, here's Genesis 1. Let us make mankind, same word used in, Genesis, or in Romans chapter 1, anthropon, in our image, Icona, same word that's used in Romans chapter 1. In our likeness, same word that's used in Romans 1. That they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds, same word, in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the reptiles, same word, that move along the ground. Paul seems to be rooting his argument of Romans chapter 1 in what Torah has already said in Genesis chapter 1, which makes two things clearish. 
depending on how you read it, of course. One, that male and female sexual distinction is necessary in the coming together of humans and sex. Two, that God's mandate for those humans, for whom male and female is necessary, that distinction is necessary, the mandate for those humans is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the world that we live in, to rule and subdue. And the, and the two words have the connotation of stewarding and caring for. So there's a sense in which humanity is above that which God has created and is in charged with caring for and stewarding, ruling over, so to speak, not ruling over like, but ruling over, enabling, stewarding, caring for creation. Paul seems to be mirroring Genesis 1 in his argument of Romans 1, and in this case, it seems that humans have exchanged both of those mandates, which seem to be normal and natural in Genesis 1, for something that's unnatural in Romans 1, both in terms of sex and humans' capacity to rule over and care for and steward creation. I don't think you have to work really hard to make that argument when you look at Romans 1 and Genesis 1, especially if you look at Genesis 1 in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Same exact Greek words in both cases. Those five one, they mirror each other. Paul seems to be making that argument in both cases, that what's normal and natural has been exchanged for something that is less than that. And he does so by rooting it in Torah, right out of the gate, Genesis chapter 1. Now that's number one. Number two, Paul prohibits both male and female same-sex activity in Romans chapter 1. Why is this important? According to scholars, on both sides of this debate, male same-sex relationships and female same-sex relationships in the ancient Near East were very, very different. Very different. Male same-sex relationships were often characterized by one of three things. Number one, pederasty. Pederasty is the essential uh, older men taking young boys in sexual relationship. Um, Now, no one in this culture, I pray, uh, and I think I can say pretty convincingly, or um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can argue this case pretty well. No one in this culture today is going to say that's normal and natural and okay. But surprisingly, it's far more common in the ancient Near East than we'd like to think it was. And pederasty wasn't just about sex. Actually, the more study you do on this, the more you find that there was a a, a culture of it, and, and it included education of, sort of modeling and discipleship of older men with younger, younger men, and of course, uh, friendship, and for those who promoted it, love. Um, one of the things that characterized same-sex relationships in the ancient, ancient world for men. Number two, um, power and submission. Part of the reason why many people condemned same-sex relationships, and specifically male same-sex relationships in the ancient world, was that it subjugated one of the partners to the submissive role. So one partner was dominant, one was submissive. And in the ancient world, the only person who's supposed to be in the submissive role is, of course, a woman. Not to be inhabited by men. So much of maleness and femaleness in the ancient world was absolutely connected to power and submission. And if you participated in a subordinate or submissive role in sex, you were deemed effeminate, which is one of the words Paul uses later in, I think it's 1 Timothy. Highly debated, highly, highly debated word. It's one of the only times he ever uses the word, and it's not used anywhere else in, in, in ancient literature. But effeminate, you were deemed effeminate, which was not sought after in the ancient world. So you had pederasty, you had shaming and submission, or power and submission, and then you had shaming. This one is not for the faint of heart. 
Uh, but one of the ways you might embarrass or shame an enemy or a foe was to forcefully rape or penetrate their men as an act of domination and conquering. So one more way in which you might dominate and conquer another culture, and particularly their men. So male same-sex relationships in the ancient world were largely connected to, or thought to be, uh, pederasty, power and submission, and shaming. On the contrary, female same-sex relationships in the ancient world, and there's tons of research and scholarly work on this, um, were not similar. They were largely consensual and often loving, which probably doesn't surprise many of us. Why is this important? Many people argue that Paul is not prohibiting monogamous, consensual, loving, same-sex relationships. What he's prohibiting is what characterized male same-sex relationships. Pederasty, uh, power and, and submission, shaming, and even idol worship, where there was sex cults where people would go and it, it, it was largely connected to how people worshipped in, in the pagan world. So people think that's what Paul's prohibiting. But it seems that Paul makes no effort whatsoever in Romans 1 to delineate between male same-sex relationships and female same-sex relationships. Paul puts them in the same category, and regardless of whether or not they were pederastic or adult, whether they were consensual or non-committed or not, marital or extramarital, Paul's argument covers them all. So, you have Paul's mirroring of Genesis 1. You have this use of, uh, uh, you have prohibiting male and female same-sex relationships, and then, connected to that, you have Paul's use of paraphysin, un natural, this Greek word that he uses. It's a very distinct word where in verses 26 and 27 he says that men and women exchanged natural relationships for unnatural relationships. And by and large, for ancient writers, in this conversation around sexuality, this word was reserved for the, prohibit, the, the prohibition or the speaking negatively about same-sex relationships. Almost in every case, when paraphysin is used unnatural, it's to prohibit or speak negatively about same-sex relationships. Now, arguably, um, all of these same sources who are saying this, also, many of them thought that sex was for no other purpose than procreation, said differently. Any sex that sought pleasure as its, as its goal was prohibited, and any and all forms of masturbation were prohibited as well. So all the single people did not like reading their material. Come on, guys. Come on, everybody. Loosen up. Loosen up. It remains, though, that paraphysin was reserved for the critique of same-sex relationships. Um, Richard Hayes says this. In Paul's time, the categorization of homosexual practice as paraphysin was a commonplace feature of polemical attacks against such behavior, particularly in the world of Hellenistic Judaism. That's what Paul is. When it turns up in Romans 1, Paul is hardly making any original contribution to theological thought on the subject. He's speaking as a Hellenistic Jew out of his cultural context in which homosexuality is regarded as anathema. And he assumes that, this, that his readers will share his negative judgment of it. Richard Hayes. I'll say one other thing on this. 500 years before Jesus, 500 years after Jesus... You can't find a single Jewish scholar or writer who speaks positively about same-sex relationships. So 500 years before Jesus and 500 years after, 
So some people say, well, Jesus never talks about it. An argument for si from silence, yes. Why doesn't he talk about it? Some would say it's because he didn't need to. He, ju he just assumed what everybody else assumed in his Jewish culture. Romans chapter 1, as a non-affirming lens applied to the text. Stand if you would. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in, sinful, in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served created things rather than the creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Pray with me. God, as we study, as we listen, as we humbly come to this text, would you, by your spirit, open our eyes, help us to see you for who you are and who you're calling us to be as your church and people who follow you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Romans chapter 1, from the lens of or through the lens of an affirming person, meaning that there's room to interpret the text or to come to the conclusion that consensual, monogamous, covenantal, same-sex marriage, same-sex relationships are a potential way by which people would live into and live out of their sexuality. Number one, what is Paul doing by saying what he says? It's one thing to ask what's said. What does Paul say? But the, the next question is what is Paul doing by saying what he says? Do you guys remember the sucker punch as a kid on the playground? You remember this one? Where somebody like kind of baits you and they sort of get you in close and then they just bam. It's like, whoa, you didn't see it coming. Sucker punched, right? This, is a th this, this argument in Romans 1 to 3 is like a theological sucker punch. Paul sets it up. Here's how he does it. His purpose in writing Romans is to encourage Roman Christians, Jewish and Gentile, to mutuality, to the forbearance of one another in love for the sake of the gospel. Right? Remember Paul's audience in Rome, Jews and Gentile Christians, of which there were large divisions and, div and divides. Romans 1, the verses we read, 18 to uh, 27, focuses on the, the, the sinfulness of the Gentiles. What we didn't read was chapter 2, where he turns the attention to the Jewish Christians. The central argument in both of those is idolatry. Meaning, the worship of something other than God. Or, the placing uh, at, at the, the, the highest place of something being reserved for something other than God. Paul says, these people refuse to worship the true God, 
and instead a desire and devotion to images resembling mortal, animal, mortal uh, human beings, birds, and animals. This constitutes a rebellion against God, and as a result of that, Paul says, God hands them over to their lusts, their heart, uh, the lust of their heart to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among, uh, among themselves. This is the setup for the sucker punch. Here it comes. Richard Hayes, an author who I quoted earlier, says this, the passage builds a crescendo of condemnation, declaring God's wrath upon a, on human unrighteousness using rhetoric characteristic of Jewish polemic against Gentile immorality. So this is classic. This is all over. We can see this other places. It whips the reader into frenzy and indignation against others. Those unbelievers, those idol worshipers, those immoral enemies of God. And then chapter 2 opens. Bam! Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse. You, Jewish Christians, you have no excuse, whoever you are. When you judge others, these immoral, you know, the, all these people over here, you have no excuse when you judge others or pass judgment on another. You condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things, he says in Romans 2. You can't take these, two, these arguments apart from one another. They're connected. Why does he do this? How are they guilty of the same things? We have uncontrolled lust and passion resulting in homo homoerotic behavior. And then we have the passing of judgment on another. How are they connected? Why? How can they be charged guilty of the same thing? Paul essentially equates passion, uncontrolled passion with the judging of another. What do those two things have in common? One could argue, in Paul's case, both uh, Paul seems to have in mind the attempt to advance one's own honor and status at the expense of another. Idol worship is the worship of something other than God. Paul essentially says that these two things, both cases, are driven by the same motivation, which is the worship of self at the cost of another. The satisfying of one's own desires at expense of another. Idol worship. Worshiping or privileging, to a degree of ultimate worth, something other than God. And in both cases, my own desire. That's essentially what Paul's saying. Which seems to be confirmed in Romans 2.8 when he goes on to say, those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness. The word used for self-seeking could be translated selfish ambition. Paul basically says, that each group is driven by the same thing, the furthering of oneself and its desires at cost to the other. Two sides of the same idolatrous coin. The worship of self instead of the receptivity, the humble gratitude receiving of God's gift. One author, Bronson, says this. Here's the central paradox that Paul describes in Romans 1. Seeking, in both cases, seeking to avoid appropriate worship and service to God and to establish their own agendas and their own independent purposes Humans end up enslaved to lustful passions instead, passions that control their lives and lead them to disgrace and corruption. Seeking greater autonomy, they lose control over their lives. Now here's the linchpin in this one. What's very important to know is that in Greco-Roman culture, the, uh, the unchecked passion and insatiable lust often resulted in same-sex homoerotic behavior. What do I mean by that? Multiple sources, you don't have to look hard to find this, say and argue that this idea where men who are inflamed with lust and passion give up what's natural to them, sex with women, 
in an attempt to conquer something else. Dio Chrysostom and Philo, a Jewish theologian, Dio Chrysostom says this, the man whose appetite is insatiate in such things when he finds there is no scarcity or no resistance in this field, speaking about relationship with a woman, will have contempt for the easy conquest and scorn for a woman's love as a thing too readily given, in fact, too utterly feminine, and will turn his assault against male quarters. What's he saying? Essentially, Romans 1 is not the condemnation of same-sex love, but rather idolatrous behavior, which both Jews and Gentiles are guilty of. One specific example of this idolatrous behavior, which was all too common in the ancient Near East, was same-sex homoerotic behavior, where someone inflamed with lust and passion would exchange what's natural for them for something that was unnatural. That's one. Number two, you can't freeze the text. What do I mean by that? The scriptures are in part a snapshot along the continuum of human progression. By that I mean the scriptures don't speak about telephones. Scriptures don't speak about the internet or the Googles or Siri. How did they make it without Siri? I think Siri is horrible. Can I get an amen on that one? Just awful, awful. The autocorrects could be a whole Saturday Night Live skit. You can't freeze the text. You have to understand and attempt to ascertain the trajectory of the text, not the frozen moment in time that the text is speaking to. Here's an example. If we freeze the text, all the women in this room should have head coverings and should not be speaking until they get home to ask their husbands questions. That's literally what Paul says. Literally. I'm not making this up. If you freeze the text, that's what, we, that's what should be happening here. But clearly, we have gone beyond where the text has left us because we deem the trajectory of the text to go past it. To a place where the cross, there's neither free nor slave, Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We are all free and one in Christ. So if we freeze the text, it can be a very dangerous thing. If you freeze the text, we live in a world that's flat. People got killed for this, right? We live in a world where women are property and useful for childbearing and rearing and household activities and our sexual desire. And where it's not only legal but encouraged to have slaves if we freeze the text. Do you see how dangerous this can be? Now, the difficulty is determining what's the trajectory. Where is the text heading? But if you freeze the text, often you can get into a very dangerous position. So is it possible that the trajectory for human sexuality goes beyond the seemingly prohibitive scriptures, but still follows the covenantal, self-sacrificial, monogamous nature that we find in God in the text? Is that possible? If you don't freeze it, but you ask, where is it going? Where is it taking us? If it's a snapshot, and God is still revealing God's self, how do you move beyond freezing the text? Number two. Number three, what about science? What about science? Clownfish. 
Did you know that all clownfish are born boys? All clownfish, they're all, they're all boys. Until one of the more dominant clownfish becomes a woman, a female clownfish, for the purpose of reproduction. Is that a gay clownfish? That's a joke, everybody. Come on, loosen up. Now go back and find, watch Finding Nemo. Pretty interesting, right? Marlin takes on some pretty strong feminine characteristics upon when his wife dies. What about humans? For the first six to seven weeks of human development, there is no distinction. There's no sexual distinction in a human fetus. It's not until six weeks, seven weeks, in a very complex process, or, or complex processes, many of which are connected to DNA and chemicals, does the same base tissue turn into either a penis, scrotum, and testicles, or clitoris, labia, and ovaries? Never said that in a sermon. <laughs> the same tissue and with I mean miraculous processes that happen in utero does this tissue become one or the other now in one in every thousand human beings modern science and doctors cannot decipher male or female baby who's born that they cannot determine what sex the baby is what gender and that's a, that's, a, that's a one in a thousand. And there's all kinds of variations of that process that I spoke about where it, where it happens for most of us as normal. And we are boys or girls. And we have these parts or that part, those parts. But all kinds of variations of, of that process takes place in a fair amount of humans. Like a surprising, a striking amount of humans who do not exist under the categories of what we would say as gender or sexual norms. What about the fact that in the animal kingdom, the vast majority of animals in the animal kingdom exhibit some kind of multi-sexual activity? And it's not just simple-celled organisms, like, oh, worms, they're hermaphrodites. Yes, they have both sexual organs, but elephants, primates, giraffes, that's an interesting study. Giraffes. I mean, well. <laughs> giraffes. Sheep. Sheep. Uh, bighorn sheep. 10%, according to studies, 10% of adult male rams, bighorn sheep, refuse to mate with ewes, females, but readily mate with other rams which is very ironic when you think about the target market for the Dodge pickup truck. <laughs> Saw that one coming, right? Here's the question. Seriously. What do you do when science and technology and the evolution of human learning affords you information that was not and could not have been available to the people who wrote scriptures. 
this was the Galileo controversy. Galileo's saying, science tells us the earth is actually round and the sun doesn't revolve around us, but we revolve around the sun. And the argument, the counter-argument was, the scriptures do not say that. Off with your head. What do you do when modern science and technology and learning goes beyond what was available to the people who wrote the scriptures? Either you bury your head in the sand, you stand firm on the text, you bury your head in the sand and pretend you live in the Truman Show where everything is normal and okay, even though it's not. Or you learn to hold the scriptures in a way that also recognizes that there are things that we will find to be true that the people who wrote scriptures would not have affirmed as true when they wrote them. And that's scary to hear and maybe even to say, but we already live with this tension. We just don't pay attention to it. Because nobody in this room believes the world's flat. We all believe that the earth has an atmospheric realm with rain and sun and galaxies and stars beyond. That's not, what it's, it's not how the scriptures read the world. So, what about science? Two perspectives. Two arguments from different sides on the same text. Here's how I want to close. My attempt or my hope is that you learn to hold or see, try to see, from somebody else's perspective. Maybe a view that you don't hold yourself. So I want to close by giving you some really, really honest questions that if you hold this position, you would do well to think through. Okay? If you hold the position of an affirming position, where you affirm the possibility for same-sex marriage, for covenant monogamous, covenant, uh, covenantal same-sex relationships, if you hold that position, 500 years before and after Jesus, not a single Jew affirms or speaks positively about same-sex relationships. That is something you should think about. Why? How, do, how does that happen? Two, is there room in Genesis 1 and 2 for same-sex relationships? If you hold an affirming position, we live on this side of Genesis 3, in which case it seems the scriptures make all kinds of concessions and afford things that are maybe not creationally intended, but that God offers a possible way forward, a redemptive way forward to. How do you make sense of, or is there room in Genesis 1 and 2 for same-sex relationships? That's an honest critique. It's an honest question, and I think a good one. Number three, if you're honest, I think all of Scripture that speaks to this issue does so in a negative light. How do you hold, or how do you uphold a value and love of the Scripture and still hold an affirming position? That's an honest critique. It's an honest question. It's fair. Now, if you hold a non-affirming position, where because of scripture and your conscience and the history of the church, you've come to this conclusion that if someone's gay, lesbian, trans, bi, queer, the most faithful way to live out that sexuality is celibacy. That's the position you hold. Can I just pause for a second and say, if that's the position most churches hold, then we, better do a, we, we have to do a better job of providing an opportunity for gay and lesbian and trans people to actually live celibate lives, which means inviting them into our families letting them be our aunts and uncles to our kids because they'll never have their own. 
That's the conservative church's position. I think that that's a fair critique, and we need to do a better job of making it actually possible for someone to live a single and celibate life. That wasn't in my notes. If you hold a non-affirming position, here are some questions. If celibacy is a charism, if it's a gift, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians. He says, if you have this gift of celibacy, then remain single. Please remain single. It's far better. There's a lot less arguments. You can devote your time to, to the kingdom, and if you can remain single, do it. If you can't, if you don't have the gift, get married. That was, that's his argument. If it's a gift, why do we demand it of anyone who's gay or lesbian? If someone says, I'm gay, or I'm a lesbian, and they do not have the gift of celibacy, why do we demand something that we afford as a gift to those who are straight? Fair, honest question of the church. Two, gender and sexual norms and science. For those that fit into gender norms and sexual norms, this position seems to work. You can make it work. But how do you apply this position to those who don't? To the honest cases where someone is born and their gender, their sex is unidentifiable. And somebody chooses and they say, I think they picked wrong. How do you apply this position to those that don't fit into gender norms? Norm meaning just how we determine normal in our culture, not a value judgment. Three, accommodation. One could argue convincingly that God accommodates all kinds of things through the scripture that may arguably, arguably be inconsistent with God's character or intention, but offers a redemptive way forward. And even if you argue that scripture doesn't affirm it as a human ideal, is it possible that monogamous same-sex relationships, covenantal same-sex marriage, are a character-consistent option? Character-consistent meaning char consistent with the character of God for someone who doesn't have the gift of celibacy and who says, I'm gay. Questions that I think you would do well to think through and be honest about from both sides. I want to close with this. I'm going to ask John Mark and the band to come. We end with a time of silence um, at Awaken after the teaching because we assume that God has more to say or things that I haven't said. And we'll respond uh, with song and something we've been doing called Prayers of the People, which we thought would be a good way to, to end today. A bunch of people, religious people, come to Jesus and they essentially try to trap him. And they say, what does God say about this? What's the Bible say? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor and yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on this. Paul takes Jesus' words and takes it further and says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I have nothing. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, all knowledge, if I have the faith that can move mountains, but it's not motivated by love, I have nothing. If I give all I have 
to the poor and give my body to hardship that I may boast, but I don't have love, I have nothing. The greatest, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Friends, my hope and my prayer for this series has been from the beginning and will remain to be that wherever you land, whatever conviction you hold, that you do so in such a way that it is motivated by and rooted in the love that we see in Jesus on the cross who hangs on the cross in front of his enemies and the other who doesn't agree with what he's about and what he's doing and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. My hope and my prayer is that you learn to hold whatever conviction you have in a way that's motivated by self-sacrificial love. And that when we disagree on a matter that's not essential, that doesn't, that, that, we, that we don't have to have to preserve orthodox Christianity, that we extend freedom to one another to hold a conviction, but not demand the entirety of the community to hold it with you. And in doing so, can partner and link arms and say to the world who's watching, this is what it looks like to love one another, even among our differences, as we work for good and hope and justice in the world. For the one who calls us for it, Jesus. Pray with me. God, as we enter this time of silence, I pray that you would turn on the lights in my heart. And if there are ways that I hold something I believe something in a way that is not motivated by the love that we see in Jesus on the cross. Make it known. For my friends in the room, whatever it is, whatever, wherever we are today, Holy Spirit, come, speak to us, invite us to be more and more and more like the Jesus we follow. Meet us now in this time of silence. Friends, as you go, um, know that our prayer team is always available. Uh, they would love to pray with you, for you. Uh, there's space just to be by yourself if you'd like that. You can let them know. And there's kneelers over there. I don't know if you know, you can write on the wall in there. So if you have like graffiti like welling up in you, that's the spot, okay? I want to close and read this prayer over you, which happens to be Paul's prayer for the church in Rome. Chapter 15. Verse 13, he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Grace and peace, church. Go love the world. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at Awakening Community, or on Twitter, at Awakening Community. See you next time.